High school is a prison. They're wrong. My high school was literally designed by people that designed prisons. Yeah. Like, I understand you're upset about your love shack not being so loving anymore. (laughs) I understand you can't have sex on school campus, but maybe you shouldn't have been in the first place. You are listening to Film Kids Giant Squid. And other things that think they're deep. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Brooke. And this week we're talking about Harold and Maude and Charlie Bartlett. Brooke, if you could have an illicit service at your high school, what would you sell? What would I sell? In, okay, unrelated but also related, in fourth (laughs) grade, we had to do like an assignment that was like everyone had to have a store. Like, by being good, you would earn money, or, like, by doing stuff, or, like, getting an A on an assignment, you would earn money, and then on Fridays, you would just be, like, the store day, and you could go around to everyone else's store and buy their things. What a weird capitalistic high school experiment. This was fourth grade. <laughs> Sorry, elementary school <laughs> experiment. <laughs> Me and the kid I was paired with, we made stress balls and lava lamps. Huh. So that, I guess. It was like balloons with like cornstarch or whatever in it for the stress ball. And then the lava lamp was like, I can't remember. I think it was like mason jar and then the oil and water. And like we like dyed the oil with food coloring. So you could like turn Ooh. it and the oil would move. I love that. So yeah, that's what I would sell. What would you sell, Lindsay? Sarcastic horoscopes, but I'd probably give them away for free because I'd be excited about them. (laughs) And then my business would fail. Yeah. (laughs) That's not a business, Lindsay. That's you just talking to people. I would make people line up for me to give them bad horoscopes in the bathroom. (laughs) Do you know what film kids would sell? Bad opinions. Oh. (laughs) 127 hours of the film kid. 127 hours with an ilm kid. It's okay. Do you want the the fun thing, the sad thing, or the law thing? I want sad, fun law. Okay. AKA my future. (laughs) (laughs) This segment dedicated to Lindsay's future. Alright, so sad. This is a two-parter. And like the first part's not sad, but we need to talk about Nomadland. So Chloe Zhao, she won... Gold, the Golden Globe for directing did not know. She's the first ever Asian person to win the directing Golden Globe. Incredible. And immediately after winning, China kind of claimed her and was like, look, we did it. What? Because she, <laughs> she is Chinese. Oh, okay. They didn't just claim her because she's Asian. No, I thought she was like, is she not like American? She was born in Beijing. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought she just, like, her ethnicity was just Chinese. And I was like, what a weird thing for them to do. (laughs) According to Wikipedia, she left China at 15 when she was sent to the boarding school in the United Kingdom. So China, when she won the Golden Globe, was like, look, a Chinese director winning the Golden Globe. This is great for us. Except then what happened was an old interview came up. Zhao gave an interview to Filmmaker Magazine in 2013 where she was talking about her early subjects and what drew her to them about the American heartland because of her upbringing in China and it quote, being in a place where there are lies everywhere. So this article kind of resurfaced recently and in response, China pulled the release date. They've completely censored all references of Nomadland. You can't search it on their Weibo search. If you do, it yields a message being like, this topic violates China's laws, regulations, and policies. The few blog accounts that had put up articles related to Nomadland were pulled, and the like promotional posters that were up were also taken down, completely scrubbed from the internet. 
I mean, it's not surprising, but... Yeah, I just, like, forget that, like, consciously that that's, like, a thing, you know? That, like... Yeah. Just, like, the ability to, like, unwrite things that happened. Yeah, so that's not the sad thing. I mean, the sad thing is, on March 6th, Michael Wolf Snyder, who was the sound mixer for Nomadland, died. He was 35. Oh, that's so young. Yeah. Like, the amount of people... Because the film industry is very big, but also very small. People Mm -hmm. that you work with, you're going to know them over and over and over again. And the amount of outpouring from the New York film community, as well as communities all over the place, is just complete love for Wolf and, like, his presence on set and work ethic, but also just him as a person. When, like, Nomadland was, like, kind of wrapping up, he filmed some of it on his iPhone at the end because they had run out of budget and he just, they needed to get the shot. Aww. Chloe put out a really, like, nice statement about him. If you want to go read that, um, we'll link it in our show notes. And just thoughts with everyone who knew him because that's sad. See, it feels weird to go from the sad to the fun. Do we want to switch to law? <laughs> well, um, okay. I, you know that QAnon shaman guy? <laughs> Yeah. Do you know what was cited in an argument for him to be released? Oh, no. I feel like I don't want to know. If this has anything to do with people thinking he's hot, I don't want to hear it. It's it's not. Okay. Because I accidentally found myself on that Twitter hole on, like, January 7th. That's horrendous. It's Forrest Gump. Oh, I guess it was going to be film related in some way. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for you to get back to that. But, you know... <laughs> I'm just gonna start talking about real news. (laughs) Just give me anything. Just throw stuff my way. See what sticks. The attorney, when representing the QAnon shaman, used the fictional film Forrest Gump, citing that his client went to the Capitol on January 6th at the invitation of former President Donald Trump, quote, just like Forrest Gump. (laughs) I've never seen Forrest Gump, but... (laughs) It's... It's such a weird thing. I like the concept that it's like Forrest Gump is like moral compass. Conceptually, it's really funny for him to be like, oh, I was invited there. Yeah, like the broken windows and like the alarms and like everything else. Yeah, I didn't know what was going on. I was personally invited and being I was escorted in because I was invited. <laughs> but yeah, in if you don't know Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump in the film played by Tom Hanks was invited to the White House where he met then-President Richard Nixon. And that's it. Like, Like in the way that people are generally invited to be in the White House. Yeah, it's just such a weird thing to be like, not only just like, oh, he was invited there, but specifically he was invited there, like Forrest Gump. Like, what were you trying to (laughs) prove with that statement? Yeah. Like, there's no legal basis for it. Yeah. (laughs) The other fun thing that I want to talk about is the first look at Space Jam, A New Legacy. Ooh. First, the internet got upset because Lola (laughs) Bunny wasn't hot enough, which... (gasps) Okay, I saw tweets about that and I didn't know what it was talking about. Did you ever see Space Jam? (laughs) I just saw tweets about, like, the cartoon, like, rabbit didn't have boobs and people were upset. Or something along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, tracks, don't know what this is referring to, but like, that happens in society. So Lola 
funny in the original Space Jam, like wears a crop top, is hypersexualized. And in the first look, she's wearing like an actual basketball outfit because she's playing basketball. Makes sense. And people lost their shit. They're like, this is not the hot bunny from my childhood, which first off, re-examine <laughs> your life. <laughs> But Malcolm D. Lee, who's the director, he kind of gave a statement saying, This is 2021. It's important to reflect the authenticity of strong, capable female characters. So we reworked a lot of things, not only her look, like making sure she had an appropriate length on her shorts and was feminine without being objectified, but gave her a real voice. For us, it was let's ground her athletic prowess, her leadership skills, and make her as full of a character as the others. Nice. So yeah. Women can play basketball, too. Yeah. Her uniform now mimics what we see of LeBron James in the first look, so it looks like they're actually playing on the same team versus her being, like, in a weird, like, what spirit Halloween would deem a basketball uniform. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I'm just so excited about Space Jam. I Fight me if you want, Film Kids. It's gonna be a fun movie. Do Film Kids not like Space Jam? I I think they do, but they don't, like... Or are they going to fight you because it's not the sexy rabbit of their dreams? Honestly, they probably will fight you over that. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's two kinds of film kids, right? There's the film kids that can, like, appreciate a blockbuster, and then the film kids that are like, if it's a blockbuster, I want nothing to do with it. And those film kids can suck it. Fuck off. Fun movies are good movies. Yeah. But yeah, that's the fun thing. Time for Law. Or wait, was Law the the Forrest Gump? No. That was also the fun thing. Okay. Remember Bill Nye the Science Guy? Uh, <laughs> this is relevant. You say I remember as if he's like not alive. I meant like the show Bill Nye the Science Guy, not oh yeah, Bill Nye, the star of Bill Nye the Science Guy. <laughs> so it turns out that Disney really just screws over people, surprising no one, mm. but also surprising everyone. So for years, Disney has been keeping 80% of revenue from older shows that it distributes, only giving 20% to the stars and other participants in the profit pool. Basically, it classifies these older shows as this revenue as home video, which is like archaic language back from the VCR era. And so these older shows that could not conceive of things like streaming didn't have that language put into their contract so disney can still use this outdated formula where streaming wasn't thought of because yeah back then it was disney would subtract 80 percent royalty to cover the cost of distributing vcr which was much higher in 2017 bill nye challenged this being like this is obviously bullshit like yeah in a lawsuit nye argued that the actual distribution cost for platforms like netflix amazon prime etc are extremely minimal and Disney is just essentially raking in millions of dollars off the top without justification. Then earlier this month, Judge David Cowan ruled on the side of Disney and stated that Nye's 1993 contract allows the studio to to continue to classify streaming and download revenue as simply home video and therefore can still take the 80% royalty. Wow, what the fuck? Cowan, the judge, basically wrote that Nye's testimony was credible, but if he held Nye's reading of the contract, it would be unreasonable because it would mean that Disney would not be able to collect any distribution fee at all. And he found it implausible that Disney would allow that to happen. We're not asking what Disney will allow to happen. We're asking you to rule. <laughs> well, allow that to happen, meaning would mean that in their contract. They would never put it in a yeah. 
yeah, would never okay. like agree to that language. Like that wasn't their intent with the contract. That's fair. Meanwhile, the lawyer Johnson argued that if this ruling does stand, Disney's accounting practice would then be adopted across the industry and would be bad news. Bad news bears. Bad news bears. Which also probably is <laughs> making bad royalties because that's an old movie. <laughs> anyway, that's what I have to talk about this week. If you're talking to a lawyer and then you secretly find out that they're a film kid, as I'm sure, there's an overlap. I mean, entertainment <laughs> law is a thing, so. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> but yeah, if you find yourself talking to a film kid lawyer, be like, hey, <laughs> let's talk about this case, but also never talk to me again. <laughs> <laughs> Maud. My shitty tweet summary is a May December relationship has one thing in common. They both wish to die. <laughs> Mine is a man is angry when women partake in his hobbies. <laughs> so Harold and Maud, it was released in 1971. It was written by Colin Higgins and directed by Hal Ashby. Originally, this film was actually Colin's thesis project at UCLA. Oh. He was working as a pool boy for this producer and somehow showed the script to the producer's wife and she loved it and convinced her husband to look at it and he liked it too and bought the script. <laughs> That's how you get in. It feels too close <laughs> to being like, oh yeah, my wife had an affair with a pool boy and so now I'm buying his script. You know? I mean, that's absolutely what happened. <laughs> Blackmail is what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) So Higgins originally was under the impression that he was going to direct and that was kind of the plan. But upon bringing it to Paramount, Paramount decided that he just wasn't right. The test shots that he was submitting weren't great and he just was too young for the job. (laughs) So instead, Hal Ashby was brought on, but he only signed on with Higgins approving of it. And then he made Higgins a co-producer and made sure that he was on set every day to watch Aww. and, like, be a part of it. The role of Maud was out to m- several actors before, ultimately, Ruth Gordon was the actress cast, including Agatha Christie. <laughs> Filming this movie wasn't the smoothest. For starters, Bud Court, which, first off, name, he was the <laughs> actor who played Harold, almost died. <gasps> I'm fitting, but... (gasps) So he is a method actor, and if you don't know what that is, basically a method actors become whatever role they're playing. Even when the cameras aren't rolling, they're still... They stay in the mindset of the role for the duration of the role. So in the opening scene where he hangs himself, Court in interviews was like, yeah, I actually thought... I might die. Then he didn't really explain why, but he was like, yeah, I almost died there. But what other people talked about more and what like the filmmaker and Bud talk about was in the pool scene where he's laying kind of like floating, he would lay face down in the heavily chlorinated water of the swimming pool for take after take after take. And it got to the point where he had so much like chlorine in his eyes that he couldn't keep them open. And he, like, wouldn't oh. stop filming, just was like, let's keep going, and, like, that to me, insane. Poor just like everyone else in his life outside of takes that then had to deal with whatever shenanigans he terrorized them with. Yeah, I- method actors make me uncomfortable. Sorry to any method actor listening. You make me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, secondly, though, there, and more importantly, there was a lot of conflict between the studio Paramount and Hal Ashby, the director. So it got to the point that one month before filming was set to begin, Hal was pretty much considering leaving the project entirely. He wrote a letter to the head of Paramount, Robert Evans, and in that he said that, like, at this point, this film will be as funny as Vietnam. Ah. Paramount was just really against the romantic nature of the film. But that's, like... The, the plot. Film. Why did you accept? Why, like, why did you say yes then? <laughs> That's the point of the movie. Robert Evans stripped Hal of editing control and took away his final say on the film. Bud Court then stood up for the filmmaker and pretty much said, okay, fine, but when it gets time to it, I'm not going to do any publicity for the film unless Hal approves of the film and Hal gets final say. Evans reluctantly agrees, gives editing control back to Hal, Except for one scene where Harold and Maude kiss, which she was particularly disgusted by. However, Hal (laughs) did sneak that footage into the trailer, so (laughs) it lives on. Because of how Bud Court stood up for Hal, he gained a reputation after this project for being difficult. And in addition, also became kind of typecast because of this role. So he really lost work because of his involvement with Harold and Maude. Hmm. So the soundtrack, obviously, is Cat Stevens. Don't Be Shy and If You Want to Sing Out, Sing Out were two songs that Stevens composed for the film and then also performed instrumental and alternative versions of several songs. There are a couple non-Cat Stevens music in the film, but for the most part, it's all Cat Stevens. However, fun fact, originally the producers wanted Elton John to do the music. Weird. Completely different vibe. <laughs> yeah. Elton John turned it down and was like, hey, my good buddy Cat Stevens would be perfect for this. So it was released, like I said, in 1971, and it was not well received. It was a box office failure. Roger Ebert, in a review, gave the film one and a half stars and wrote... <laughs> Quote, the visual style makes everyone look fresh from the wax museum and all the movie lacks is a lot of day-old gardenias and lilies and roses in the lobby filling the place with a cloying sweet smell. Nothing more to report today. Harold doesn't even make pallbearer. Oh my god. However, the film kind of became a cult hit almost immediately. In Minneapolis, the West Stage Theater played it consecutively for over 110 weeks in a row. Oh my god. The film did go on to play at the theater for over three years. When Paramount executives went and visited the theater to celebrate its second year of playing this film in a row, residents picketed because they were so upset that management wouldn't change the film. They just were like, give us something new, please. Please, God, something new. <laughs> I like that it wasn't that they were, like, anti the movie. They're I mean, they're like, also anti the movie. I haven't seen a new film in three years. <laughs> they were also anti the movie, to be clear. But... They also were like, just give us something new and stop giving us the same (laughs) porn. The film eventually did make profit, but 12 years after its initial release, because of its cult status and theaters continuously playing it, Ruth Gordon, like I said, who played Maude, gave an interview where she said she almost threw out the $50,000 check that she received for the filmmaking profits because she thought it was a scam. She was like, oh, there's no way this film made money. (laughs) The film now is critically acclaimed and is on a bunch of AFI's top lists, including their number 45 on AFI's top 100 laughs for comedies and number 69 
Ayo on AFI's nice. top 100 passions or romance films. AFI has also ranked it as the number nine romantic comedy film. Number nine of all... Wow. Okay. I watched this in one of my film classes, and for the life of me, I have no idea what the professor's point was. Like, <laughs> I don't know why we watched this movie. He just liked it. He I was mean, like, my theater stopped showing it, so now I'm showing it to you. So we open with Harold hanging himself. His mother walks in and just ignores him, choking, and is making a phone call. And then at the dinner party that evening, Harold is like, oh, my throat's kind of sore. And then after dinner, she walks into the bathroom to find it coated in blood and Harold in the tub having faked another death. Which he's very inconsistent with his blood use, I will say. <laughs> Where's he later getting scenes, all the fake blood? He had the chance to make a lot of really good bloody scenes considering this one was great and all of his other ones failed and those are the ones he had an audience for. Okay, but like with this one, he had time to set it up. And the other ones, he was committing the act of suicide in front of people. They weren't discovering him. Yeah, but like, I'm sure you could have, you had a fake hand. You could have filled that with blood. Yeah, he could have. So his mother runs out crying, not because she thinks he's dead, but she just can't handle him anymore, which fair. Fair. (laughs) (laughs) And Harold like does his little like sticking out tongue thing, which by the way, all of Harold's like, fourth wall breaks in the film were improvised by Bud. Because again, he was a method actor and he was just in the role. Harold then goes to see his psychiatrist and the psychiatrist is like, okay, dude, what do you find fulfilling in your life? And Harold's like, I go to funerals, man. Harold then goes and buys a hearse and takes it through a car wash before attending a funeral where he sees Maude watching on from a distance and eating a picnic. I will also say... I didn't know when, like, all the beginning scenes until he was able to drive. I'm like, this kid is 12. He literally looks like a baby. And then he stands next to Maude, and he's enormous, and also looks 12, and it's so unsettling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't know how old he's supposed to be, other than somewhere between late tween- Sorry, late teens. <laughs> late tween. Early 20s. Late yeah. tween. 15. The, the script, I'm pretty sure, makes him 20, but they specifically okay. never, like, aged him in the movie. To keep the appearance of an enormous 12-year-old, I get it. It's <laughs> fitting for being unsettling, but... He then is talking to his uncle, who wants him to join the army to make a man out of him and has, like, he's missing an arm and has the little cord to make his, like, sleeve salute, which is so funny to me. (laughs) (laughs) At home, he has pretended to have drowned himself in the pool and his mother just fed up with his antics, just ignores it and gets her workout in, as one does. Back in the psychiatric office, Harold admits to faking his death 15 times. I really would have expected more. Same. Because this this whole movie only takes course during a week yeah so like he nearly doubles his numbers within that single week yeah he's amping up his mother then reveals that it's time for him to get married which like even for a 20 year old this one does a 20 (laughs) harold attends another funeral where maude is also there he tries to ignore her after she winks at him but she approaches and offers him licorice they then talk about how the guy who died was 80 and maude is like you know 80 is a really good time to die 
Like, 75, you're too young. 85, you're too old. You're, you're just wasting time at that point. Like, 80 is a good time to go. And it just brought back a memory that I had of this guy I worked with that was convinced <laughs> that he wanted to die at, like, 55. <laughs> Why? And I was like, that is so young. And he was like, I don't want to get old. Like, I don't want to deal with being what? old. And I was like, sir, you have kids. <laughs> How old was he then? He was like 22, maybe. Just like fucking moisturize and work out. Like, you'll be fine. Yeah, you don't need to die at 55. <laughs> like, if you were going to say 80, you know what? Fine. 80, you've lived a life. I'll allow it. Like, I'm not encouraging it, but I'll allow it. But 55. <laughs> at that point, like, you're not even retired. I don't want to die without retiring. You know how, like, when people are like, what's your dream job? And they're like, I don't dream to work. His dream is to work, and he doesn't want to foresee a life where he's doing anything other than working. Insane. Maud and Harold follow the casket as it's being put out in the hearse, and a marching band marches past. Harold kind of talks to Maud, and she drives off, and the priest comes out and reveals that Maud just stole his car. Harold sits in the chair as his mother starts to fill out the, like, relationship personality test, which I'm a big fan of personality tests. This one wasn't. This was not for me. <laughs> it was like, are you conservative enough to date my daughter? Was just what that test was. Yeah. I will also say the idea of filling out, like, a paper. If it were, like, a real personality test, I love the idea of filling out, like, a paper one. And then just, like, sending it in. That's how Scientology almost got me, Lens. That's fair. <laughs> for context, I live pretty close to the Celebrity Center for Scientology. So we get a lot of people. We don't get them ever knocking. They just will leave hand-delivered stuff on our doors. And also, whoever lived here before me clearly signed up for something because I cannot get off this list. And it's <laughs> to this person that lives here before me. But one of the things they delivered was like, here, like, take this personality test and, like, figure out, like, your strengths and your weaknesses and blah, blah, blah. Like, your, what kind of personality you are and how best you can, like, navigate through the world. It didn't say anything about Scientology on the front. So I open it and I start looking at it. I'm like, oh, my God, I love a personality test. It's like 50 questions. I like flip through the booklet and the very last thing is like to get your results, come down to the Scientology Center. And I was like, no. See, if I were there, I'd be a Scientologist by now. Like I would have been, I wouldn't have flipped to the end first. So I would have filled out that whole test and been like, I invested all my time and now I need to know, I guess I'm going to be a Scientologist. <laughs> For all the Scientologists listening, that's how you can get me. Send me personality tests. Uh, I don't think they Anyone. Care. Not even limited to yeah. anyone. Send me... If you if want you, me to join your cult, send me a personality yeah, test. I, I will say, join like, your if cult. If you want to start a cult, make a personality test. So his mother's filling out the test for him without waiting for his response. And Harold is just sitting there loading a gun. He first aims it at his mother, but she doesn't notice and continues filling out the test. He then shoots himself, faking yet another death. And his mother is just like come on, Harold, what the fuck? And just continues filling out the test. At the next funeral, Maud once again sees Harold and, like, tries to get his attention from across the funeral, which, beautiful, love it. We love funeral flirting. You said funeral flirting, and I just remembered my grandmother saying the story where my grandfather picked her up at a funeral. <laughs> this one person was telling me about their friends that, like, they proposed in a, I guess not at a funeral. It was just at a cemetery. But like the location of funerals because like their grandmother was dead and therefore they couldn't get their approval. So they wanted to do it at like the grandmother's grave. But like it wasn't 
important to the person that they were proposing to to like ha- like they weren't close with their grandma. Oh, so they were never like I wish I could you could have my grandmother's approval. Like it was just a thing that they decided to do, and I don't what? know why. I hate that. It's like there's only <laughs> been like plots and like movies and stuff where it's like oh like my dad was my best friend and now he's dead and they're like okay let's go propose I gotta ask your dad first which is still fucking weird. Um, yeah. And also, like, I want my proposal to be about me. I don't want ghosts involved. But yeah, so after the funeral, Maud pulls up in Harold's hearse and is like, hey, do you want a lift? So Harold gets in and Maud drives Wait, is off. that when someone's like, isn't that your hearse? And then he replies with yours. Is that then? I is was about to later? get it. It just made to, me laugh. literally about to say it. <laughs> so you did not make me laugh. It made me angry. <laughs> Because but I love, like, I love Sneems, snail memes, <laughs> so I'm like, ah, the OG Sneem, a yeem, a heem, a horse, horse, a horse meme. But yeah, Maude drives off like an absolute crazy person, and then Harold's like, this is my hearse, and she's like, your hearse, and he's like, yours. <laughs> Which, it's just bad, it's like not a joke. <laughs> That's the only joke. Maude is then like... Well, then you're going to take me home. I'm not taking you home. So then they go to her place. She invites him in and Harold like immediately loves her place, but then tells her that he has to go and she makes him promise to visit. Then Harold's mom invites the first woman over and witnesses one of Harold's fake suicides where he burns himself in the yard. Which equally, like, I don't know how she continued freaking out considering since Harold was there it was obviously a bit <laughs> like but like and especially I, I since the mom leave. isn't freaking out <laughs> i would still probably I would still leave, leave but, but... <laughs> yeah, i wouldn't run screaming i'd be like yeah no this is not for me <laughs> i'd be like this is a bit but not one that is <laughs> but not one that i'm involving myself with. i'm not committing to this bit and that is a rare rare thing then harold goes and visits maude where he finds her posing nude for an artist maude then asks harold is it wrong and he basically like checks her out and is like nah uh. maude then shows harold all of her art including the like smell art and the tactile art which like Harold like gropes and moans about which sure we can remove a single kiss scene where it's like not graphic but that (laughs) stays in the film fine Paramount art's allowed to be sexual just not 79 year olds (laughs) yeah the problem is that we're trying to make an older woman sexy Maude then serves him ginger pie and oat straw tea and tells Harold that she's turning 80 on Saturday. Harold also holds his fork like a maniac where he just clutches the whole ass thing and like... Yeah. Like he makes a fist that it's, the fork is then in. It's right. And then he puts it in his pie backwards. <laughs> he is a maniac, so... Yeah. They then go watch some demolition. Then Maude takes him to like a garden center because she just likes to watch things grow. Which is wholesome. Yeah, she is wholesome. (laughs) They steal another car and are driving when Maude stops and she finds a tree that she wants to steal and move it to the forest because it won't survive in the city. My question is also, like, how does she keep stealing cars? Like, were they just really easy to steal? Because she doesn't do anything to them. Like, she doesn't, like... 
She had, and she like mentioned it. She has those all those keys, so it has to be a specific kind of car, I think. Oh, okay. Because I was like, she doesn't like jump it or anything. If that's how you steal cars, I don't. I don't know. I clearly know nothing about cars. <laughs> We're not criminals. <laughs> or how to steal them. But <laughs> I was just like, they can't be this easy. What's going on? And this many people can't just be leaving their keys in them. Unless that's what happened in the 70s. And then people would steal them and they'd be like, maybe we shouldn't. But also, if I actively stole cars, I wouldn't like drive like there were absolutely no rules in the entire universe. No, absolutely not. So yeah, they are looking at this tree and cops notice this car that's half up on the curb. So they approach it and Maude goes back and goes, oh, like, what's the problem here? They're like, ah, someone didn't do a great job of parking. She was like, oh, what a shame. But like, my car's fine, right? And they're like, yeah, no problem. She gets in that and then drives like a maniac and they just stare at her. So they drive back to Maude's place and Harold, like, asks her about the umbrella on her mantle and she talks about how she that was for when she used to like fight and would use it for defense and he was like oh so you don't fight anymore and she's like no I still fight for the big issues in my own way I just don't use the defense anymore so then they go to the piano and Maude sings and plays if you want to sing out and then Harold joins in awkwardly which considering he's already so awkward really just Puts it over the edge. <laughs> Is that why you paired these? Because they just both had that song? Yes. Because up until this point, I was like, oh, okay, maybe that's the connection. <laughs> Genuinely. To be fair, I think their, like, home lives are very similar. Like, the mom, like, the single mom yeah, who's kind fair. of detached. They're both these, like, kind of quiet kids. Like, Charlie becomes super popular, but, like, in a normal person's world, he would not be popular. Yeah. Charlie's not obsessed with death, but, like, he could have been. <laughs> he has the vibe of someone that would be. <laughs> so, it tracks. And they're romance films. And If You Want to Sing Out is, like, played six times in both of these films. <laughs> Maude stands up and, like, walks away from the piano, but the piano keeps playing and she, like, dances around. And then is like, we should play something together. And Harold's like, I don't play anything. And she's like, well, you have to play something. Here, take a banjo. Instead of, like, I don't know, a recorder or something easy, like, just, like, a banjo. This is a stringed instrument that you need to learn chords for. Fuck it. Here you go, kid. And didn't teach him. She's <laughs> like, you can do it on your own. We see her teach him one chord. <laughs> Then he goes home and his mother finds him in the garden as he's practicing banjo and she's like, I have a surprise for you. And it turns out she got rid of his hearse and bought him a new car, which he hates. Harold and Maude steal the tree and just speed through a toll booth and obviously gets pulled over. The officer is just like, can I see your license? She tells the officer she doesn't have a license, nor is it her truck, nor is it her tree. And the officer's like, okay, wait, let me get this straight. And she's like, cool, thanks, bye, and drives off. The officer obviously follows her and she like does spins around him and that apparently makes him dizzy and he had to stop. I really don't understand why he didn't follow her. He again. also didn't have a driver's license. And so here's where I'm going to ask Lindsay, is this cop propaganda? I'm going to say no, just because the cops aren't the heroes, nor are they glorified, nor can they do their jobs, nor can they even drive. So, yeah, no, like, the cops are just incompetent. I really don't understand. What, like, <laughs> yeah, no, like what they were meaning to do in any of this. <laughs> They're just comedic relief. Harold and Maude get to the forest and they plant the little tree. Then on the drive back, the officer sees them and pulls them over again. He forces them out of the car. Maude then steals his motorcycle. Why isn't she on, like, a wanted list? 
Yeah. <laughs> the officer, like, pulls out his gun to try and shoot at her and just... The gun doesn't fire and he's like, oh, well, guess that's that. Back at Maud's, they smoke Kuka and then Harold tells Maud about the first time he faked his death when he accidentally did it. He was at his school's lab and he blew it up and he was like, cool, guess it's time to go. So he went home and went up to his room and police officers arrive and tell his mother, hey, your son died in a fire and she like loses it. And then he tells Maud that he just enjoyed being dead. Also, like, if he just went back and went to his room, they're also very bad at trying to trace back a body. Yeah. Who did die in that fire then? And also, I like that it was like, this is the first time I faked my death and not this is the first time I had an actual near-death experience and I just decided I liked it. Yeah. (laughs) Like, there was no faking. (laughs) You made a mistake, Harold. (laughs) Harold and Maud then waltz. Then Harold's mother greets another of the computer dates. She introduces her to Harold, who has bought back the hearse. They have tea, and Harold just cuts off his own hand in front of Edith, obviously freaking her out. Harold's mother then tells Harold, you know what, his uncle's right, he's gonna enlist in the army. If I was on a date and someone did this, I feel like this is a little less aggressive. It could have been more bloody, but this is a little less aggressive where I might be impressed with the bit. But like, depending on the conversation and like whether or not I got murderer vibes from them already, like if I would never go on a date with Harold because he gives me murderer vibes. I I would never go on a date with Harold because going on a date with Harold means his mother is going to be there. I'd prefer his mother to be there than to me being alone with him. I just, I would never go on a date with someone that's like, I'm dealing with the mother and I'm introduced to the mother before I'm introduced to the guy I'm dating. No. Yeah, but didn't like people used to do that? Like there'd be like a chaperone. They're not in the 70s. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Like... In the 1800s, yes. <laughs> Regardless, if this happened mid-date, would you would you think fun bit or would you cry? I don't think I would cry. There's no moms. You're at like a bar. If we're at a bar and some guy just mid-conversation cuts his hand off, but then like that's the only oh, weird like thing fake. he's done that night. <laughs> yes. I would probably see the date out. I'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I would call him out on it. Be like, what's this bit? Like, <laughs> like, this is a really weird choice. I don't know that I would see him for a second date. I will say that. That's fair. But Harold talks to Maude about the fact that he's being drafted. And she tells him just to not go. And he's like, well, I can't do that. And he's just like, well, figure it out. He then spends the day with his uncle and gets suspiciously excited about learning how to kill. And then confronts Maude, who was there petitioning for peace and threatens to kill her, starts yelling at her and pushes her. And she falls down a hole. The teeniest, tiniest hole I've ever seen in my life. How did she fit in that hole? What? How did she fit in that hole? Two, why is that hole there? Why didn't someone at some point cover up this dangerous hole that people can fall through, apparently? But yeah, his uncle just, like, screams at him. And obviously, Harold will not be joining the army. Then Harold and Maude spend the day in nature just yelling and somersaulting and otherwise just being free. And they end up on, like, a dock... And Harold tells Maude that she's beautiful and she's like, oh, Harold, you make me feel like a schoolgirl." And holds her hand and sees her tattoo that obviously means that she was in a concentration camp. He also, like, 
tells her, he's like, what are you doing tomorrow? And then is like, just kidding, I have a date. Like, why is he trying to make this poor 80-year-old woman jealous out of nowhere by bringing up this date that you don't want to go on? Yeah. Who's to say? He just, I think, I mean, I am to say. I think he genuinely forgot, but. It's, well, he, (laughs) the whole point of Mon to Harold is to have someone to tell everything to that he doesn't have to, like, filter or, like, preface or, like, be drilled about that he just openly wants to share these things with her and like that is very important like metaphorically and also to the character development so that's but why that's he tells rude, her Harold. i mean yes practically it is rude but <laughs> metaphorically it is not <laughs> people aren't metaphors harold <laughs> you can't take the, the killing thing out of your mouth. All oh, he wants to do is put the, the killing is. thing in his mouth. <laughs> that, that That is what he wants to do. <laughs> That's the entire plot. It's just him wanting to put the killing thing in his mouth and give it the power to do the killing. He wants to put the killing thing in his mouth and not give it the power to do the killing. And then when someone else gives it the power to do the killing, which is arguably what the killing thing is for, he gets upset. Yeah. I understand someone died, but he knew this whole time. She announced it. She did announce it. I mean, to be fair, if someone said they wanted to die at 80, I probably would think, oh, cool, I have an entire year not on their 80th birthday. I feel like I would have probed them on it. I mean, yeah. (laughs) That too. If I were interested in having this person be my best friend and love interest, I'd maybe ask some follow-ups. The amount of follow-up questions I asked about my coworker who wanted to die at 55... And I had no romantic, I mean, we were friends, but no, he was married and had kids. (laughs) But he wasn't, he wasn't your metaphor. He was not my metaphor, therefore I could ask a (laughs) follow-up. So, Harold's mother introduces him to Sunshine, who's the final computer date. She is interested in the knives in the music room, and so he's like, oh, I know what I can do, it's time to fake my own death. Except Sunshine just goes with the bit. She's like, oh my god, you're so talented, and then quotes Romeo and Juliet, which bad move, and then fakes her own death, but commits to the bit better. Because his mother- I was gonna say, he seems annoyed that someone else tried to commit to his bit, despite bits being communal experiences. Yeah. And then, (laughs) but she commits better because his mother comes in and Harold sits up, but Sunshine just lays there. She's committing. Yeah, because her bits are good and yeah. his are not. And his mother is just like, come on, Harold, that was the last one. And for, like, the first time when I watched that, I was like, wait, did she actually die? Did they just murder her? <laughs> Harold and Maude go to the carnival and he gives her a present that says that he loves her. And she, like, immediately, she's like, oh, I love you, too. And then throws it into the water. And he's like, what? And she's like, well, this way I'll always know where it is. Which. That's Fair. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you're given a shitty gift, pull this move. Just throw it into the water and be like, I always will know where it is now. I'll never forget. And they watch the fireworks together. And then the next scene is they're naked in bed together. Can we talk about what is his name? Bud? Yeah. Can we talk about his chest hair? <laughs> Look, he's the face of a 12 year old, the chest of not a 12 year old. <laughs> It's just one thin line from it's, nipple to nipple, and that's it. It's like a cross, though, because it kind of has, like, a vertical bit in the middle. 
I was so intrigued by it. I was like, was this natural? Did someone do was this, this to manscaped? You? <laughs> I hope it was manscaped because I like the character decision that was like, we need to manscape his hair. How how would Harold have his hair? And he was like, I know this. I've been living in this guy's mind for weeks. Say no more. <laughs> the only benefit of method acting. <laughs> He goes home and tells his mother that he plans on marrying, and she's just like, oh, really? Who? And he, like, hands her- I don't even know what that is, but he hands her, like, a card with Maud's picture on it and a sunflower on the other side, and she's just like, haha, you're not marrying a sunflower. And he's like, no, the other side, dumb person. And then she's even more upset. I think she would prefer if he married a sunflower. <laughs> I mean, like, maybe she thought that meant sunshine. And she was like, I don't appreciate that she also commits to bits, but at least they can do it together. (laughs) He then meets with his uncle, psychiatrist, and priest, who are all vehemently against him marrying Maude. And the priest is really fucking graphic about it. Like, that was the most graphic thing about this movie. Harold then throws Maude a surprise birthday celebration for the two of them, and they dance around in her place. And she's just like, oh man, I couldn't imagine a lovelier farewell. And explains that she took the tablets already and she'll be dead by midnight. And Harold is just like, you did what? (laughs) Harold obviously freaks out and calls an ambulance. And the ambulance ride is like talking to Maude. And just imagine being the paramedic. Because you're like, oh cool, (laughs) it's this grandmother and her grandson. And then you're like, it's what now? It's who? (laughs) Like, that's some shit, like, after you take her to the hospital, like, you're in the break room and you're like, guys, you gotta know who I picked up today. Like, this woman was, like, 80 years old and she was boning a 20-year-old. They met a week ago. It's her birthday. Harold tells Ma that he loves her and Ma's like, that's great. Now go love some more. Which, like, beautiful brush off. <laughs> like, I just think if someone tells you they love you and you go... That's great. Go love someone else. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you can experience even more love and I hope that I'm not there. Yeah, like I won't be there, but go go send your love elsewhere. Please. Thank you. Bye. And Harold is like, never. And then we kind of get the montage as Maude is brought back, but obviously does not make it. And Harold drives recklessly from the hospital, much like Maude. And we see his hearse go off the cliff and crash on the bottom and like completely get destroyed but then we reveal that he's standing on top with the banjo in his hand and then he plays if you want to sing out and then dances off the cliff i mean not off the cliff (laughs) away from the cliff (laughs) away from the cliff okay here are my questions how do you get the banjo out of the car if the banjo was never in the car how did the car not run over the banjo how did he suddenly know how to play the banjo he's been practicing he's had a week He's had a week and he spent it with Maude. <laughs> Maude taught him a chord. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, I think he could probably take the banjo out when he himself got out of the car. Fair. I guess in my mind, that was too quick of a move to do with an entire banjo. <laughs> I don't... Did, did he jump out of the car? It's, it's unclear because it cuts. So it's not like a smooth take from him driving to the car driving off. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. So like, he I assumed like, he kind of duck and rolled. I kind of assumed he rigged it so the car would fly off and he would be like standing there. Okay. But yeah, that is Harold and Maude. Charlie Bartlett. 
My shitty tweet is the entire cast of Dick Grassy rethinks what Eli's storyline would look like, but in Paige's season. <laughs> I love when your tweets are so specific. That's like, <laughs> unless you have an intimate knowledge of Degrassi. <laughs> <laughs> that goes from season one to like 12. 12. <laughs> <laughs> My tweet is a teen boy proves that therapy should be a public service. And also it's apparently very easy to commit fraud. <laughs> yeah, I guess as a preface to this, if a movie takes place in Toronto, the entire cast of Degrassi is going to be in it. That's just... What what a cast fact. of Degrassi was, was in Scott Pilgrim? There's like other Canadian movies that randomly will have Degrassi people, and I don't see them in anything else other than Canadian movies. Yeah, that's fair. So Charlie Bartlett was released in 2007. It was John Pohl's directorial debut, and it was written by Gustin Nash. When the film was released, it was a box office failure, earning 5.2 million back of its 12 million budget. Gustin Nash, this also was his first screenplay. He started writing Charlie Bartlett when he was 26, and he worked at the mall in Burbank, primarily with teenagers. And among, like, having conversations with the teenagers that he worked with, he said that a lot of them were disappointed with the, like, teen movies that would be coming out, saying that they didn't feel represented by them. And he thought that the way teenagers acted was different than how films portrayed them. Post a conversation with his psychiatrist father, Nash had a dream where, like, a character character came out and their whole mantra was this like you can do it attitude aka the first scene with charlie bartlett and all the other characters were from him observing his teenage friends which is also weird to me because he was 26 but i digress as a as a 24 year old i wouldn't want all of my friends to be teenagers but like i have dreams every now and then i'm back in high school yeah one anecdote that i also thought was funny in interviews with john pull he was saying that like, so this was the first movie that he directed, and he used to be an editor. And he said, quote, it was funny because the studio said to me, oh, great, you're an editor. You're just going to shoot the pieces that you need. And I was like, no, I haven't done this before. I ended up shooting double my film budget, and they let me because I think they thought I knew what I was doing. I told them, look, this is how you make a movie. And they trusted me. I just found it funny that they were like, you're an editor. You can do exactly the scenes that you can do and no extra. And he was like, I've never directed a movie. But they just respected my reputation. <laughs> Opening scene. Crowd is cheering for Charlie, a.k.a. Anton Yelchin, for what <sighs> looks like a TEDx talk with, like, strong lemonade mouth vibes. Crowd, despite it being, like, an inspirational talk, are all holding up, like, like rock out, like, hand motions. Yeah. And they're all standing like it's a concert, but it's not a concert because it's a, because Charlie's in a suit, but... It was a dream. He wakes up. And in real life, Charlie is being expelled from his school for selling fake IDs to other students as a way of trying to fit in and become popular and to get the students to like him. And because repercussions for illegal activities do not exist for wealthy white people. So all that happens is he then goes to public school instead. But also for sure, her offering to write a check would have worked. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Movie done. He stayed in school. An angry looking Robert Downey Jr. I never actually wrote. I think it's Nathan. He is Robert Downey Jr. the whole time. Everybody else is their character names. Uh, yeah, I would. He's just the principal in mine. An angry Robert Downey Jr. comes to his house, brings his daughter, Kat Dennings, a.k.a. Susan Rock Candy, which is a weird choice, but whatever. And then there's a wonderful scene of him dressed like a sailor, racing a remote control boat in his pool. This apparently happened when he went to rehab 
for alcoholism and came back and got very into boats. That is his storyline. In this new school, Charlie is a nerd, a punk dude, pushes Charlie's head into a toilet because Charlie is actively a pretentious douche. Charlie goes to sit with Craig and Paige from Degrassi, who, oh, all of the Degrassi characters, I refer to them as their Degrassi names. Great. (laughs) Charlie goes to sit with Craig and Paige from Degrassi and they leave as soon as he sits down. Charlie then decides that he's going to find his place in the school play because he thinks that Susan is hot. Also, for some reason, all of the main characters end up also being involved in the play. I get he's never been to public school before, but like, why would you think I'm going to wear my old school's uniform. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> it wasn't until like a little while later that he like cut off got rid of it too. The, that he cut off the logo. Yeah, like if you want to wear a blazer, fine, I guess. Be a weirdo that wears a blazer to school. But like, don't, like you're rich. You have to have more than one blazer in your life. He also straight up like wore his uniform the first day. Yeah. And then the other days like wore Weavish. the blazer, like didn't wear the uniform, but wore like the blazer with the logo. Yeah. For some reason, all of the main characters are then involved in the play at the end of the movie. But regardless, Charlie auditions for the school play where Susan and Henry, who was also in a few episodes of Degrassi, are casting directors. Charlie's audition. They that were supposed to do Degrassi? for like three episodes. But yes, Charlie's audition is supposed to be something from Shakespeare, but he does. I don't even know what, maybe it's a reference I'm supposed to know, but something about a girl getting her period and explaining that to her dad. As he's leaving, the punk dude punches him like once, barely even beats him up, to be quite honest. But his mom notices that Charlie is struggling in school, hence why he's beaten up and sends him to therapy because she is a good mom, which Charlie shames her for as being weird. Charlie reveals his rock TEDx fantasy to his therapist where he's saying that his goal as this TEDx rock speaker is telling kids to fit in and the therapist tells him to start taking ADHD medication to see if it works. I also want to say, as a side note, while I love goth kids, there's so many goth kids in this movie. There's like at least three different groups of goth kids, and I feel like high schools don't have that many goth kids. But then I also realized that the screenwriter's characters were based on the kids that he worked with at the mall, and nowhere goth kids are working at the mall, and that's why it makes sense. (laughs) Robert Downey Jr., the high school principal, announces that he's putting cameras in the student lounge, and the students flip their shit, Uh, and as Charlie's first stunt at attempted popularity, he pulls the fire alarm to end the announcement. I don't know what school they go to, but, like, my high school had cameras fucking everywhere. Like, they were allowed to do anything at the school from, like, just smoking on school grounds, and, like, seemingly no one getting in trouble for it, but, like, also wanted security cameras, but, like, nothing else. Like, seemingly no other... Yeah, like, at one point, I don't know who said it, I don't remember, but someone was like, what's next? Random locker searches? I was like, yes, that's high school. They would routinely bring drug-sniffing dogs to my high school. Oh my god. Charlie takes said Ritalin and then goes into a manic spur of homework and then lying in an empty pool and then aggressively playing jazz piano, which... Fun fact, wasn't Anton Yelchin because they, like, told him, like, five weeks before, like, oh, there's, like, piano playing scenes. Can you do that? And he was like, y'all, I cannot in five (laughs) weeks. And also included Charlie running back and forth in his pool, clearly not concentrating, and yet he still decides to take it for four more days until he, what I thought was sleepwalking, 
I don't even know. He runs into the street naked, yelling the things that he was telling people in his dream during his TEDx rock fantasy that they're not alone and whatnot. And then a cop brings him home. The mom weirdly tries to flirt with him. And the cop is like, ha, all the college kids take Ritalin for fun. To which Charlie is like, that is something I can work with. So Charlie kidnaps the punk kid in his chauffeured car. I have a huge problem with his friend Len that it's played by a neurotypical actor. It makes me icky. And yes, this is from 2007, but I just want to say it makes me icky Oh, now. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I specifically looked it up because I was like, did they? They did not. Anyway, that's my only comment is that we can do better. <laughs> but this is also 2007. And in 2007, could we have done better? I mean, we should have. We should have. Did we? No. <laughs> So, so Charlie asked Punk Kid to be his business partner in selling his Ritalin, and the Punk Kid is skeptical at first, claiming, we're different, quote, you drive a limo and I take the train tracks home, end quote, which is a really weird use of what I think is supposed to be him being like, I'm from the other side of the tracks, but I digress. I mean, regardless, he, he also agrees. just literally <laughs> walks along the train tracks with him, but like, also like, just be like, I walk home. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie then goes to the school dance dressed as a newsie so Punk Kid can sell the Ritalin, which he does in seemingly like 10 minutes, followed immediately by a bunch of girls running around topless, and the whole dance is absolutely freaking the fuck out, even though there were only 90 pills and there's way more than 90 people at that dance, so I just like the idea that like everyone else was like, good vibe, I'm also (laughs) gonna freak the fuck out at this dance. Yeah, and also I have never taken Ritalin. But, like, I didn't think that was the effect. <laughs> I feel like if that were the effect, I'd see much more topless people just, like, right? out and about <laughs> dancing. This is like Breakfast Club all over again, where he smokes a little weed <laughs> and then just screams a study room sh- glass shatter. The next day at school, Charlie is suddenly super popular and everyone is fist bumping him. And what I don't know is... Do they know that he was the one that was responsible for the pills? Because at this point, they were only sold at the dance. So was Punk Kid like $10? Also, they're from Charlie. Like, <laughs> I want to know his sales pitch. Was it, okay, this guy Charlie's got some like sweet Ritalin, $10 a pill. Or was it like he was specifically going around and being like, if, you, if anyone asks you where you got it, you got it from Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the latter. <laughs> like he, was, he was making sure that he would not go down for this. He was like, this white boy who's rich can handle this shit. I I walk the tracks <laughs> home. I can't handle getting in trouble. Unintended popularity afterwards. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. then installs the cameras in the student lounge, which I don't know what I assume this lounge to be, but what it is, is just a shack outside where people make out and like play Wonderwall on their guitars. Yeah. I don't know. My high school did not have a student lounge at all. Like, I know, like, some schools do, but I think it's mostly, like, a private school thing. Yeah, mine didn't have one, and if it did, I was expecting it to be, like, one conference room, which they just, like, said was the student lounge, because it had, like, like a section of the library, kind of. Yeah. (laughs) That's more what I expected. It was not that place. It's just, like, the idea of, like, like, having a school station place where you can, like, (laughs) make out with someone like our school was very very you could not have any pda at our school like the places people made out were like under the the stairwell (laughs) (laughs) was like the back stairwell and then we lost our stairwell privileges after school hours because people were found having sex (laughs) but like what if you had like a tutorial upstairs what 
How do you lose your privileges for stairs? The back stairwells would be, they'd be locked after, like, they're, like, oh, just the back there were main stairwells, stairs that were open, all. and then there were, yeah, but it was after 2.15 when school ended, like, you needed to have a pass if you were anywhere, oh, so, like, if you were going school. from, like, a class to, like, the library, like, after school, school hours, you needed, like, a hall pass, which then became bizarre and annoying, but it was only for, like, a short period of time where I was oh, a senior. That was, like, for my entire high school experience. If you were staying after school, you had to have a pass, which meant, like, if you were planning oh on God. going to, like, after school tutorials, you had to, like, tell your teacher in advance. Someone named Kip asked Charlie if he can get a prescription for something for his depression because his parents are unhelpful and he feels like he can't ask them. And instead of describing the symptoms that Kip described to him, Charlie looks up, like, any possible drug for any possible mental illness someone could possibly have and then gives, like, the textbook definition of symptoms to the therapist and the therapist never finds it suspicious. But he tells Kip when he is selling him... Xanax and Zoloft that quote when you're having a panic panic attack just remember it's not that bad because you can't actually die because that's what people reasonably think when they have panic attack then charges him $60 for Xanax and Zoloft and therapy and therapy other students start coming to Charlie for therapy including yet another goth girl Drake another Degrassi character someone when who wants Drake to do acid become Drake like because <laughs> I thought it was before this I thought it was before this, too, so I like the idea of him being like, nah, I want to be a part of this. <laughs> but yeah. I guess at, maybe he started but wasn't big okay, yet. Okay, yeah. In 2006, he launched his music career by releasing his first mixtape. Three years later, his third mixtape garnered him critical and commercial success, and the following year, he released his official debut album. So he, okay. So this would have been after. He's already making music now, but he isn't doing it full-time now. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie then finds, like, seven different therapists, which makes sense for the amount of drugs that he needs to get. I don't know why his mom is okay with all of it. Because selling medication and therapy wasn't enough, Charlie then makes a production company to produce a video of Punk Dude beating people up because he records all of his fights and for some reason the entire school wants to buy it. Somehow forgetting the literally huge deal everyone made about the cameras in the student lounge, the student lounge is where Charlie then decides to sell the videos and subsequently gets in trouble because Robert Downey Jr. can literally see him selling these videos. I'm sure every high school has this where someone they get there's like a a ring of selling something. Did you have that? I mean, if I did, I wasn't like involved, so I don't know. Like, like I didn't try to buy anything from anyone, so oh, I don't like, know. But like, maybe there was at our high school. It was they like took away the vending machines, so. Someone started a ring of selling the specifically the big Texas cinnamon buns. Ooh. Which I think are really gross. I think all like the little Debbie snack products are just disgusting, but like they were a big hit. It got to the point where the guy would like they would have like duffel bags full of them. Oh my god. <laughs> and genuinely like the like the principals would try and shut it down, like the police officers that were always at our school would like if they, if anyone was seen with the big Texas, they were immediately taken away and confiscated. <gasps> like it was. <laughs> what if they brought one from home? You couldn't. <laughs> they were banned. <laughs> so they were sad. a banned product at our school. You could not have big Texases. It was oh the most God, dramatic cinnamon thing. Cinnamon buns. <laughs> That's tragic. Just yeah. put them back in the vending machines. <laughs> no, because that would give in to the terrorists. 
And the kids are terrorists in this scenario. I, I hope this kid is doing good things. I'm sure he is. He was an entrepreneur. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. suspends Charlie for three days. Charlie picks up Susan, who for some reason isn't in school because I feel like they implied that it was the middle of the school day. But Charlie plays piano and Susan sings the song from Harold and Maude. The cop, though, who is a snitch, sees Charlie and Susan go off together, tells Robert Downey Jr. that Susan is hanging out with Charlie. So Robert Downey Jr., yells at Susan being like, I know boys like him. I'm boys like him. He just wants to fuck the principal's daughter. And Susan rightfully gets mad. So Robert Downey Jr. drinks and raises his boats. And to show that he is drunk and angry, makes his boats crash into the walls of the pool. Robert Downey Jr. calls Charlie into his office and is like, I used to be a boy your age. So I know that like, because Susan's my daughter, that's a big power move for you and some toxically masculine stay away from my daughter bullshit. He also calls Charlie her boyfriend, even though they like hung out once and it wasn't even a date. Yeah, but this is high school. Let it slide. <laughs> Susan goes to talk to Charlie in a bathroom therapy session where she tells him how her dad is an alcoholic and was suicidal when her mom left. Then Charlie and Susan share a kiss in the bathroom over their shared trauma. Punk Kid covers the camera in the student lounge, even though all he did was make an announcement and the cameras can't hear anything, so you're just making it suspicious on purpose, to make an announcement that Charlie is going to throw a rager. Said rager is actually at a concert venue, so I guess Charlie just, like, rented it out yeah i didn't really understand what was happening there that no, entire venue also, really confused me I, <laughs> i'll get to that when they go to the weird room yeah that's like clearly for sex <laughs> at, at the party craig tells charlie that he wants to go to paris and paint instead of playing football which i didn't get why he was telling that to like like these are just everyday questions that people are asking charlie which is weird to me but yeah Susan brings him to this backseat lounge of the concert venue, which is like a fake car and a projector. And there's only four seats. And I don't know what it's supposed to be because it seems like a movie room, but that's not efficient for a concert venue or bar. <laughs> yeah, like it's not like one of those things that has a bunch of like fake cars. So like 20 people could be in this room watching a movie. It's like <laughs> it's just four the people. one. And so, like, obviously, nine million people have had sex in there. Are you kidding me? Oh, why would you lay naked in that car? Because <laughs> you're dumb and drunk. I don't know. But people have definitely done it. That, like, makes it the purpose of the room. But that also seems like an insurance hazard. Like, <laughs> yeah, the whole thing is a hazard. I just also the <laughs> fact that he, like, doesn't get dressed to go talk to people. I was You can't just put on a blazer. That's not an outfit. <laughs> Susan asks him a series of questions relating to their dads, including, do you only like me because my dad's the principal and you want to piss him off? To what's up with your dad? Charlie reveals that his dad is in jail for tax evasion and that his mom has been depressed since he left and that his dad asked if he would take care of her, which Charlie agreed to, even though, like, I'm pretty sure Charlie's not, especially considering that he was in boarding school until he came to public school and, like, he didn't leave boarding school to take care of his mom. Yeah. Charlie and Susan have sex, and then Charlie literally stops the concert to tell all of the guests about it. And they're, like, supporting him. If I was at, like, a party and someone stopped the music, screamed out, I'm Charlie Bartlett, I'm not a virgin anymore, I'd be like, ooh. <laughs> Next scene, 
Kip overdoses on the medication that Charlie sold him, and the principal goes to Charlie and is like, this would be a different story if we could prove that you gave him the pills, but then talks very openly about how he knew about the entire operation and did yeah nothing. And his qualms seem to be like, you're not giving professional advice. Charlie's response is then, but I'm liked here because of it. And Robert Downey Jr. says there's more important things than being liked. And Charlie responds with, like what? To which I said, as if someone didn't literally just die. I didn't realize that they didn't mean that he died. And I thought that this was a very weirdly, I thought that that's the reason that the principal went to his house. Because he like, OD'd and died and I was like they're all being extremely casual about it next scene Charlie goes to visit Kip so he did not die he just had his stomach pumped Charlie then asks him if he's still being quote a suicidal maniac yeah this guy should not be giving psychiatric advice no (laughs) but they play a video game Kip says that he's writing a play they pitch the play Kip says that he will not kill himself if Robert Downey Jr. says yes so then Robert Downey Jr. allows him to do the play but with like no like mental health referrals like anything Charlie decides to go down a new path he flushes all of the pills down the toilet which is an environmental nightmare but I digress he tells the student body he won't be giving any more medication but will still be doing therapy sessions for free and everyone still wants to attend Craig's girlfriend is one of those people and she says that she's been crying a lot and has slept with nearly every guy on the football team because she feels too bad to say no to them. Charlie more or less blames her and tells her to try taking it slower with them. Yeah. Charlie doesn't give good advice. He's repeatedly bad advice. Like, (laughs) I don't know why people keep going to him. (laughs) Murphy then takes her on a date. Why couldn't he be in his punk self? His collar is popped. That's his punk part. Uh, I thought that was just 2007. (laughs) That could have just been 2007. (laughs) (laughs) Like... Come on, Lind. The preppy boys were popping their collar in 2007, not the punks. (laughs) Henry starts a protest at the school, chanting that it's a school, not a prison, referring to the cameras in the student lounge, and more students slowly start to join over the course of the day. High school is a prison. They're wrong. (laughs) My high school was literally designed by people that designed prisons. Yeah, like I understand you're upset about your love shack not being so loving anymore. I understand you can't have sex on school campus, but maybe you shouldn't have been in the first place. The administration wants to blame Charlie despite him not being at the protest at all. And also that's what they want to expel Charlie for, not the literal selling of the drugs on the school campus. (laughs) Like they have weird rules. They're like very specifically Um, mad about the wrong things. Yeah. (laughs) Charlie picks up Susan at her house and gives her a pharmacy bag in her driveway. So Robert Downey Jr. freaks out. Clearly as she's dating someone that's literally selling unprescribed medications to other students. So Susan and her dad get in a huge fight about how he expects the worst in her and Charlie. The bag is revealed to then be nicotine gum. And the fight ends with Charlie accidentally punching Robert Downey Jr. The students throw like a nighttime pro protest about the cameras at the school. Charlie speaks to the crowd and has his TEDx moment where he tells them that they should stop listening to him and start listening to themselves of how they want to live their lives. The cops then come and arrest Charlie for punching Robert Downey Jr., which like I know punching someone could be considered assault. 
I just, like, never considered that, like, one single punch could get you arrested. Upon Charlie's arrest, Robert Downey Jr. shuts down the protest. He says that he's getting rid of the student lounge completely and renaming it the Charlie Bartlett Detention Center. Which, one, makes it sound like it's, like, a juvenile detention center. Two, I feel like they should be happy if, like, you get detention, you go somewhere nice instead of, like, a classroom without windows. Yeah, you go to this, like, chill lounge where you can sit on a beanbag Disgusting couch. Yeah, that too. (laughs) The students freak out, destroy the lounge, and the superintendent fires Robert Downey Jr. But at the end of the movie, he's a history teacher again, so I guess just gets demoted. (laughs) It was a really weird thing, because, like, I also don't know why he was getting fired. Yeah, like, he handled the situation. (laughs) Yeah. I guess the kids, like, destroyed everything, but, like, he could not have prevented that. You were standing right there, superintendent. You weren't (laughs) doing shit. (laughs) This whole time, the kids have apparently been working on Kip's play, which Susan is now starring in, even though she was supposed to be the director, producer, casting director of the other one. Upon realizing that Susan's dad isn't there, Charlie goes to invite him and finds Robert Downey Jr., drunk, the house trashed, and he has a gun in his hand, which he told Susan that he got rid of, and he's standing on the deck shooting the boats in his pool. Like, if I went to my girlfriend's dad's house I would leave. I would not know what to do. I wouldn't be like, Noah's so great, my advice. I can calm him down. Yeah, that's true white boy thinking. Like, you know what can solve this? Me and my presence. But, like, it's always worked out for him, so, and like... And it does work out for him here. Robert Downey Jr. then holds up the gun, but, like, not to his face, like, to the sky, and Charlie thinks that he's going to shoot himself, so he tries to grab the gun, but ends up falling off the porch and into the pool. Charlie convinces him to come to play. Charlie then eventually visits his dad in jail, which he is rejected doing the entire movie. Robert Downey Jr. for some reason becomes a history teacher again and charlie applies for an internship at a psychiatric facility which he absolutely should not get because he's problematic as heck and then he tries to offer the guy he's like the guy's like oh i've had a busy day he's like you want to talk to me about it no charlie you're no 17 <laughs> and you give bad advice yeah <laughs> but that is charlie bartlett Hey, Lindsay, which did you like more? I know Charlie Bartlett has tons of problematic shit about it, but I was just bored by Harold and Maude. (laughs) So I like Charlie Bartlett more. The parts that weren't problematic were fun. (laughs) Though I'm accepting that it's 2007. (laughs) You're 1000% pissing off film kids everywhere. That's fine. (laughs) Like, I don't know why this is such a quintessential film kid movie, but it really is. Like, film kids out there fucking love Harold and Maude. I mean, it's a fine movie. It's not bad. But it could have been better, yes. I like the tone, him, like, killing himself. Like, that's just funny to me. I don't know why. And, like, the straight-faced mom is just a really funny beat to me. I wish, like, it was, like, that plus just the better energy of Charlie Bartlett. Yeah, I like dark things. I just did not care about anything or anyone in that movie. And I was like, I'm not. If I had to delete one movie from the world, I think I'd probably delete Charlie Bartlett. Because it's it's just, I don't know, it's less culturally significant. Like, because I feel like Harold and Maude was so different, especially for the time. Whereas Charlie Bartlett doesn't feel that different from a lot of other teen movies. Like, I know he was, like, specifically, yeah. like, I want to make a different teen movie. I he agree. made a teen movie, dude. <laughs> like, it's a, I was like, it's the same. It's a standard teen movie. Anyway, that does it for this episode. If you liked it, share it with a young white boy in your life who has too much confidence for their own good. <laughs> or share it with your metaphor. <laughs> 
share it with your metaphor and then think about who you're sharing it with and be like, maybe I should treat you like a person. Or find us on social media. We are at Film Squids Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or visit our website at FilmKidsGiantSquids.com. Film Kids Giant Squids is produced and hosted by Lindsay Buttle and Brooke Hoppy. Intro music is by the band Poly Action. Transition music is Banjo Opener by Simon Ace. Editing by Brooke Hoppy. Until next time, kids. <laughs>